Our text today is from Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verses 17 through 22. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we approach you this morning with awe and reverence. On our own, we were once separated from you, having no hope in this world. But now we have been brought near to you through the blood of Christ. Once we were not a people, but now we are your people, no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens in your very household, O Lord. Let us delight in the sure knowledge that we, with Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone, are being built together into your holy temple. Lord, I thank you for the godly men you have provided us with this past month to rightly handle the word of truth. And now we are glad to welcome back our brother Greg and pray that the Holy Spirit has refreshed him and will continue to empower him as he preaches the gospel with power and conviction. Clear our minds of all distractions and the cares of this world so that all our focus might be on Christ and him crucified. Amen. Thank you, brother. Welcome back. All right. So one message cannot answer all the questions about what the church is. There's so many different ways we could go with this. And I really have to also admit that this is a dangerous time for me to be doing a topical message like this where I'm not confined to a passage that we're walking through because I feel like a volcano that's been simmering for five weeks. And I'm not sure how long it's going to continue to, to gush out. But um, we've got to just jump into this. And, and, and I think that the, other, the other thing that is important and the reason I want to take advantage of this time in between our little kind of a break in, 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 in Romans, uh, from Romans, is that th this is one of the most misunderstand, most misunderstood things, right, in Christianity is this thing of church. It's such an ambiguous word. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a transliteration. It's a, an Anglican word, really. The, the word church can mean anything we want it to. It's not a direct translation of the actual meaning of the word in the Greek. So church can be kind of whatever we want it to be. And so I think it's important that we understand biblically what that is. So today's title you saw is going to deal with three things, the church, the definition, mission, and description of the church, or put another way, the church. What is it? What's it supposed to do? And what does it look like? What does it look like for a church to be a church of the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, if you were to ask people, a group of people, what is the church, you will get a group of answers. You'll get a, a various amount of answers. Some would say, well, the church is the building at 6420 uh, Bridgetown Road. And the church is down there on the corner. You'll get that answer by many people because they could kind of associate the church with a building. It just comes to mind. Church, boom, building. Others would say 
It's an international organization divided into, divided into multiple dioceses and, and parishes with the Pope as its head and bishops, cardinals, and priests operating as local and regional managers. So you've got that idea of the church, a big, a big entity, a big international conglomerate, uh, kind, of a, kind of a cold, rigid, man-made institution, right? And a lot of people think that when they hear church. They think it's a man-made institution. Kind of like a uh, man just decided one day to start this church. Kind of like the, the, the words of, 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 of Gumboots, Paul Simon's song, Gumboots, where it says, the lyric says, Hey, senorita, that's astute. Why don't we get together and call ourselves an institute? And, and a lot of people think that's what the church is. It's just guys got together one day and decided, let's just call ourselves an institute and call it the church. But that is not the church. How do we find out what a church is? We've got to go to the Bible. As with all things spiritual, we must go to the Bible to find our definition and not culture. And so let's, let's notice what we begin to see in the church. First and foremost, we will see that the church is not a man-made invention. Notice Matthew 16. This is where we see there's confusion in this passage, but we're going to explain that today. But here it is. This is where we see the church and whose it is. Jesus was asking his apostles, beginning there in verse 13, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Wow. And Jesus answered, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So this is huge, this confession that Peter makes. It's truth. Christ is the Messiah. That's what the word Christ is. It's the word Messiah. God's chosen King. Christ is not Jesus' second name, Jesus Christ. It's a title, an eternal title. He is the forever chosen King of God, the only Savior of the world, the Son of God. It's a huge confession. And look what Jesus says concerning that. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it wow glorious now it can be confusing it has been mistranslated for years many would look at this and say oh look at that the church is peter's because jesus said you're peter and i'm going to build the church on you but he didn't say that that's not what this text is talking about and we don't have time to dive into this is not my main point today but i will kind of clarify this while we're here especially in western hills i.e. little Rome. So we need to kind of clarify this idea where so many would say, yeah, this text tells us that Peter was the first pope and that Jesus is saying, I'm building my church upon you. And they got to kind of go to the Greek for, for one quick um, way to break that idea. And that is the, the word Peter is the word rock uh, and, and Petros, uh, the, the name Peter that Jesus calls him Petros. And it means rock, a little separate rock that you could pick up right, and, and throw into the, 
Creek, if you'd like. You are Petros. I call you Peter, which means rock. But then Jesus uses a different word where he says, upon this rock, this Petra. Now they sound alike in the Greek, but they're not the same word. And Jesus is saying, Peter, yes, you're Peter. You made this confession, which is true. And upon that rock, that confession that I am the Messiah, it's upon the truth about me that I build my church. And Jesus even clarifies it by saying, he didn't say, Peter, upon you, I'll build your church. No, he said, I'm building my church upon the rock. And by the way, in the Greek, that word Petra is like a gigantic cliffside. I mean, the side of a mountain, that which cannot be picked up or moved, gigantic rock, bedrock. And Christ is speaking of himself, the rock. Upon me, I will build my church. It's my church. And nothing, even the gates of hell, shall not prevail against it. And that's a promise that's glorious, that's foundational to our understanding of the church. It is Christ's church. He instituted it, and he is building it for his glory. So my goal this morning is to look at three things that we all need to know about the church. So in a sense, yes, this will be kind of an academic message but I pray also that it will be very passionate in the sense that we'll see the value and the glory of the church and that we'll understand more what that is. So let's look at this definition, right? What is it? What is the church? And I, I like Wayne Grudem's definition. He, again, this is just the simplest definition of what the church is. The church is the community of all true believers throughout all time. What is the church? It is the community of all true believers of all time. John Frame puts it similarly when he says, the church is the people of God in all ages. So if we want a simple definition, and it blows away, by the way, any of the institutionalized ideas of church, does it not? Instead of it being some conglomerate some, some, with some CEO running it and all these man-made rules and regulations, we see very simply the church is the people of God throughout all ages. That's the simplest definition. My definition would be something like this. God has chosen to call out a specific group of people and assemble them together before himself that he might lavish his goodness and grace upon them and that they might glorify him forever. That's the church. It's glorious. The word in the Bible, in the New Testament, that we have translated church is the word ecclesia. It's transliterated. It's where you take words and you make a word. So we've got a new word in English called church. And as I told you, the danger of that is that can now be anything we want it to be. But what is the meaning of the Greek, the original word? What is that definition in Greek? It is assembly, gathering, congregation. That's what ecclesia means. So what was Jesus saying when he said, I will build my ecclesia? He said, I will build my congregation of people. I will build my assembly of people. I will build my gathering. That's what a church is. The gathering of Christ's people. And rightly so, that word is used in the common language. There were many kinds of assemblies, public assemblies, political assemblies, right? I, I mean, social, civic assemblies like the the. the the Kiwanis or, or whatever gather together for their meeting. So obviously the word assembly can be used in many ways. The key is what Matthew tells us. Jesus said, I'm building my assembly. 
the assembly of Christ's people. Church of Christ. Not denominationally, but the church that is Jesus' church. His people. That's what he's saying. So from the, from the very Old Testament to the New Testament, way, way on up into this very day, God has been building an assembly of people for his glory. So again, I hope we grab this concept. Maybe you've never thought of that before, but that is it. Think about this back in the Old Testament. God chose the Israelites to be his people. Out of all the people in the world, God chose an, an, an insignificant group. They weren't the biggest. They weren't the smartest. They weren't the greatest. They weren't even a people. And so he made them a people. But he chose that people to be his people. Ultimately, we know that he delivered them, as we saw today in our liturgy. He delivered them from Egypt, freed them from Pharaoh, called them to worship him, met with them at Mount Sinai. And as he met with them at Mount Sinai, as they were gathered, he gave them his covenant, his Ten Commandments. And, and, and it's interesting because Deuteronomy, when Moses writes about this time, that day that that happened, in Deuteronomy 9.10, he, he uses the word to explain what, what, what that was. It says this, And the Lord gave me two tablets of stone, written with the finger of God, and on them were all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire, when? On the day of assembly. Assembly. And it's translated, by the way, properly. That's the, what, what is that word in the Hebrew? Kahal. Kahal. Which means gathering, assembly, congregation. It's the identical definition as the word ecclesia in the New Testament. Same thing. So what we see then is that this is God's plan, to call out a people for himself, his Church, it began in the Old Testament there. Exodus 9, 4 through 6, what does it say? You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine and you shall be and, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God is setting apart a people. He's calling them to himself. He's making a covenant with them. And man, this is rough. This is rough news because this is a covenant based on his law. And he's saying, if you will keep my commands, then you will be my people and I will be your God. His commands are perfect. So what he's saying is, if you will be perfect, then I will be your God. And you will be my people, and you will be my church. You will be my, be my gathering among this world for my glory. That's tough because we can't, and they didn't keep his covenants. They did not keep his promises. They couldn't, nor can we. So we're doomed, right? That's it. It's all over, right? It should be. But this is where the glory of God's grace comes in, and that when we could not keep his covenant, he kept it for us. That's why Christ came into this world as a man to keep what we as men and women could not keep. He kept God's laws perfect. 33 years of his life, never once did he break one of God's covenants, not even from the heart, which is where God longs to see us keep his laws, not just on the outside, but from the heart. Nobody can do that, but Jesus did it in our place. 
And since we are covenant breakers, we deserve the wrath of God. But Jesus also took that in our place on the cross when he took our sins upon himself and God poured out his wrath against our law-breaking in Christ. And so now, in Christ, by faith, in his perfect work, life, and death for us, we are now righteous. We have kept the covenant in Christ, and we are now God's people, and he is our God. That's what's glorious. And that's what we see in the New Testament. It was always God's plan to bring about a people. He began in the Old Testament, and he continues in the New Testament, and it's all fulfilled in Christ. And Peter brings this up in, in his sermon. In Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, as he explains this idea, how that we have been made right with God through Christ and therefore have become his assembly. Look what it says. So the honor is for you who believe. Mm, the honor of what? The honor of being part of God's church. The honor of being part of God's covenant people. Who's the honor of that to? The, 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 the ethical Jews? Ethical. The ethnic Jews is what I meant. The, those who are Jews by birth and physically Jews? Is that who the honor is to? No. The honor is for you who believe. The whole thing that Paul's been talking about in Romans for the last year. By faith, we are made the people of God. We are made righteous. We are made perfect. We are forgiven and brought into his family. And so this is what Peter's preaching. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So for you who believe, Christ is your cornerstone. For you who do not believe, he's a rock of offense that ends up crushing you. So it's all about belief here. And what, Paul, what Peter's doing here is he's showing whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, we are all made one church, one congregation in Christ by faith in him. Look what he goes on to say. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. And this is just the finishing thought of those who would not believe and, and not have faith in, in the rock. But look what he says. But you. So they, they stumble from, from a lack of faith. There's a whole lot more to that sermon right there that Peter's preaching that we'll get into in a couple of weeks in Romans chapter 9. <laughs> big, big stuff. Because it uses those words, you didn't believe as you were destined to do. Well, that's huge, right? They were destined not to believe. That's a whole other issue. Don't get hung up. I don't know even why I brought it up. Oh, Peter brought it up. I didn't bring it up. <laughs> but look at the rest of this. Look at this distinction. There are millions and millions and millions of people in this world that will never believe on Christ. They refuse to believe. They will not believe. But you are a chosen race. A royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You see that same language? Peter is using the identical language that Moses used. Identical language. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
That's the church. Those who are called by God's grace out of darkness and into his congregation of light, his assembly. And it's one people, because in the context, and we didn't have time, but if you would go back if, in your time of Bible reading and read 1 Peter chapter 2, the whole chapter, you will see this is all about Peter explaining to the Jews that now the Gentiles also by faith are brought into this covenant people by faith and that all Jew or Gentile are made a part of this church by faith in Christ. Why? So that they may be one people. And this, is incur- this is important. We have, uh, oh, I'm, gonna get, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to throw this out for those theological geeks who want to know about or think about this, but there is something called dispensationalism and those guys would view um, all that I'm preaching by saying, no, 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 the people of Israel are a separate people of God, and the church in the New Testament is a new people of God, and they literally make it to where God has two kinds of people, two people, or two congregations, if you will. But according to the Bible, we see there's one people of God. One people of God. Ephesians 2, 17 through 22 that we read earlier makes this so plain. Look, look what it says. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. That's interesting language. What's he, what's he saying here? What Paul is saying here is he's, he's addressing Jews and Gentiles. The Jews considered themselves near to God. They were his chosen people. They had the law. They had the covenant. They had the promises. They were near. The Gentiles were considered far from God. They were pagans. They were, they were just out here rebel-rousing and, and doing whatever. They, they didn't serve the one true God. So the Jews ethnically thought they were closer because they were born into a Jewish family who traditionally knew all about the law of Moses. And in some senses, they were closer, obviously, to the knowledge of God. But look what, look what Paul says. The emphasis he makes is that Christ came. Christ came and preached peace to you who were both far and near. You see that? He preached peace to both the Jew and the Gentile. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you who, so, that, so, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. One household of God. One church, one family, one congregation of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The apostles, New Testament, we think of prophets in the Old Testament. He's saying this, that was all the foundation it was all pointing to Christ, who is the cornerstone of my assembly of people. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And look at this. Here it is. Here's the beauty of this. Christ is that cornerstone. And the cornerstone of any building is really the, the thing that keeps it all together. That's where it all connects. Christ is that. He is the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The whole structure, the Old Testament, the New Testament, all believers of all times, the whole structure is joined together in Christ, the cornerstone. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's the church. Again, that's, that's, that's it. That's that simplest answer. All the believers of all ages who have been drawn by God's grace 
given faith to believe on Christ, have rested on that cornerstone, you are being built into the assembly of God, the temple of God. That's what it says. Now, whew, having said that, we've got to realize there are two aspects to this thing called church, right? There, there are two aspects of that assembly. One is the invisible universal, okay? So hang with me here. Don't go to sleep. Don't you go to sleep. <laughs> hang in here. You know, li- let me encourage you to listen to preaching even when you're kind of zoning out because you, you, you may not grab everything and you won't. Every ser- you're not going to grab everything in every sermon, but you're going to grab something. And you're going to be that much more sanctified when you come into the next sermon. And you're going to grab something out of that. And the Spirit's going to apply something else. And you're going to get more knowledge and more knowledge. That's how we grow. So don't go to sleep. Persevere. So here it is. Two aspects of the church. The first would be the invisible or universal or Catholic aspect. Now, when I say that word Catholic, I want to do that. I did that purposely because in church history, the word Catholic does not initially mean Roman Catholics. That's what we think about when we see the word Catholic, and it freaks a lot of Protestants out when you say Catholic, the Catholic Church. But we have to understand that word Catholic simply means universal with a little c, if we use that little c. So a lot of Protestant uh, Reformed theologians, as you read them, will use that term for the church, the Catholic Church, the, the Apostles' Creed. It says, I believe in the Catholic Church. It's not talking about the Roman Catholic Church. It's simply talking about what I just explained, the universal church of all of God's people throughout all the ages. But in some sense, folks, that church is invisible to us because I, number one, to be a part of that, you have to have a regenerate heart. Your heart has had to have been changed by the grace of God through faith in Christ. And I can't see your heart. So you understand what I'm saying? So, so in some sense, that, that whole big universal church of God is invisible to me because I can't see it presently. And I can't see the Old Testament saints right now. I can't see the future saints of God. So in a sense, that's invisible, invisible to me, that universal aspect. Basically, we could think of that universal, invisible church as the church, as being the church as God sees it. That's what that is. The invisible universal church is the church as God sees it. He sees all of his church. He sees it. He is outside of time and space, as we know it. He's not confined to that. He knows the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. And as we saw in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, here's the glorious truth of this universal, invisible church that we can't see, but God can see. It's talked about in Ephesians 2, 5 and 6. God made us alive together with Christ. That's his church. All those people who he has made alive together in Christ. And he has raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ. We are right this moment. The whole church, Old Testament, New Testament, future, all people who will ever be saved are assembled before God right now in Christ. That's what it's saying. He sees them all. They are his. We don't see that. Therefore, I'm going to say something kind of crazy right now, and that is, don't get so caught up in the universal church part. Yeah, it's great to know we have Christian friends and brothers and sisters who, who are all part of that church, the folks at Faith Fellowship, the folks at Christ the King, the, the, the folks at North Cincinnati, the, the folks just, just name the church where they're preaching Christ. Guess what? That's part of the universal church, yes. But we can't get caught up in that because it's not very practical. 
So that's where we have to look at the second aspect of the church, the one that the New Testament writers spent the most time talking about, the one that the epistles were written to, and that is the local visible churches, the local visible aspect of the church, which Matthew Henry called the handmaid of the universal church. What do I mean by that? Yes, all of God's people are saved. They, they constitute one gigantic congregation that will one day be in heaven together uh, with God. But that congregation, that mystical, invisible congregation is useless on this earth. We must have local gatherings of real people carrying out the work of God. That's what the local church is about. Does that make sense? So look, look at this glorious truth of that. A local church. Let's define that part. And by the way, so, so here's one way to remember this. The invisible universal church of God is the church as God and only God sees it. And the local visible church is the church as we see it. You see that? Because I'm looking around right now and I see a church. Here's the funny thing about this. I'm going to just hang with me again. Whew. Did you know? And here's the thing we got to understand about this. A visible local church is flawed. The invisible universal church is perfect. Okay, now here's why I mean that. Here's what I mean by that. Only God sees the hearts of those who he has saved, and he puts them in his assembly. And, and they're all believers. It's perfect. People who come into a local church may not all be in the universal church. Do you understand? People who sit in a local church may not be saved. People who are even members of a local church who have gone so far as to take the membership class and to commit to, to membership and to you know, meet with the elders and, and place themselves under the teaching of that church may not be saved. Just because you're a member of a local visible church does not guarantee that you are a member of God's universal invisible church. Does, does, you see that? And that, ladies and gentlemen, was free. That was just extra. That was just something. But let's notice this definition of that local church real quick. A local church is a visible group of baptized believers who are committed to one another for the purpose of worshiping God and making disciples. That's the simple definition of a local church. I want to say it again. Here's, here's, here's the simple definition of what a local visible congregation or assembly of people who are trusting in Christ are professing to trust in Christ. It is a local church is a visible group of baptized believers who are committed to one another, that's membership, for the purpose of worshiping God and making disciples. That's what the church is here to do. It's, it's, I don't want to jump ahead, so I'm not going to do that. But in this church, in this local church aspect, this is where pastors come in. This is where elders come in. This is where teachers come in. God has given gifts to his local churches. Ephesians 4, 11, 12 say, says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, that's the word for pastors and teachers. Why? To equip the saints, the people of God, for the work of ministry, for building up the body or church of Christ. So that is a loving grace that God has given us. He's giving, given us teachers, preachers, soul care, and leaders who are to equip all of us. For what? For the work of ministry, for the building of God's kingdom. And how, how do we do that? We, 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 we worship him and we make disciples. We tell people about Jesus. That's what the church is. 
God calls those believers to submit to, to the biblical teaching of those elders. This can get scary at times. Again, must, we must admit that everybody's human in a local visible church. We're all real humans. We're still in our flesh. That's the other point. Therefore, sin is also present in the visible local church. And that sin is present in the members, for sure. I'm kidding. <laughs> and in the elders. That's your time to say, for sure. <laughs> Amen. Therefore, we're going to have hurt feelings. We're going to have abuse. We're going to have cases of, of, of pain and hurt caused by false pastors and shepherds. The Bible warns about that. By greedy pastors, by uh, selfish pastors and elders, by those who would rule with an iron fist and abuse the people of God. That will happen, but that does not negate the responsibility that we have as God's people to be faithful to his local church as, as a believer. We still must join faithfully, find, do the best we can to find a, an outpost of that universal church called a local church that is best modeling and striving to glorify God in what he has commanded us to do in his word. That's why you want elders and pastors who actually believe the Bible and stand on it and preach it. But he does say because of that, if they are doing that, he calls the believers to submit to that teaching. Hebrews 13, 17, what does it say? Obey your leaders and submit to them. Oh, the society we live in says, I hate that verse. The O word and the S word in the same verse. Obey and submit. But here's what it says, folks. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? For they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who will have to give an account. This is a very sobering verse for members and elders. The truth is, folks, if you are in a good Bible-preaching, Christ-centered church, the elders of that church are watching over your soul. And those elders also do that with a sense of awe and reverence, knowing that they will have to give an account to every word they spoke to you. Every sermon we preach, every counseling session, we have to give account to our great shepherd, the head of the church, Jesus Christ. And every pastor worth his salt at all will approach ministry with this reverence and this awe. It is not a game. It's not a popularity contest. We have been called by God to teach and therefore given a grave responsibility, a weight that if we are honest, we didn't ask for. I didn't. I know many other guys didn't who feel a genuine call. Now, if you enter the ministry as a profession and that's it because you think it's going to be a good job, then you're not even one of God's shepherds. Sorry. God calls and gifts people. He, he gave to the church. They didn't come and say, I think I want to do this. No, he gave to the church apostles, teachers, prophets, pastors. And therefore, he equipped them to equip the saints. So when God calls a man 
to be a pastor, an elder, he not only separates him to that call, but he equips him with gifts that allow him to do that. Even if they don't want to do that sometimes. Again, what do I feel personally? It really doesn't matter, but, I, but, but folks, if I was going to do what I was going to do on my path, I'd be in Nashville singing songs, playing music, writing songs. You know, that was my, that's, that's what, I, in my flesh, that's what I want to do. And then I would just tithe abundantly to my local church. You know, that, that, that's what I would do. That was my plan. But I have no doubt that God called me in the eighth grade. I rebelled for many, many years until I was a senior in high school again, but I can't get away from it. I didn't, this is all, I shouldn't even be getting into all this, but my point is this, any pastor who's in the ministry and they're not under the awe of God, they're not, they're not in fear and reverence as they approach the pulpit, as they approach people, as they give counsel from the word of God, if they're not in the back of their mind realizing, I'm going to stand before God and answer for this, then they don't need to be there. So, so you, your responsibility as a church member is to obey those leaders and submit to that leadership as they obey and honor God themselves. And if they're not obeying God and not preaching the word, then of course you don't. Let me say the only, responsi- the only, the only, uh, the only authority that I have as your pastor and any of these elders have in our church over your life and over you is when we are standing with the word of God and saying, thus says the Lord. That's the authority. Apart from that, I cannot tell you what clothes to wear, how to do your hair, whether or not to paint your fingernails, where to go on vacation. I, I, there, there, are, there are accounts of that kind of abuse, that kind of overreach of authority. I am the pastor. I tell you everything about your life. No, we are called to proclaim Christ and the whole counsel of God. There's our authority. And as we preach that, then you are accountable to submit to that teaching as it is coming from the Lord. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ with the intent being, if I stop following Christ, you keep your eyes on him. But as long as I am faithfully following him myself and I am preaching what he says, then God says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are watching for your souls as those who must give an account to God. That was, again, that's harsh in our day. Most churches aren't approaching church like that, and yet that's the truth of what God says. It's a loving relationship between pastor and members, but we have got to submit yes to one another and ultimately to God's word together. All right, that's, whew, that's the definition. Oh, we got to really hurry. Good night. Look at that. All right, only six more points. I'm kidding. What's our mission? These are going to fly. What's our mission? What is the church supposed to be doing? Very simple. It's the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Here's what the church is supposed to do. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Making followers of Christ. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. You see that again? That's what a pastor is doing. He's not teaching his ideas or his ideologies or his opinions. He's teaching all that Christ has commanded. That's our job. But this is what a church is all about. 
very simple, make disciples. What does that mean? Tell people about Jesus Christ. Tell them that they're sinners. Tell them that God's wrath is upon them. Tell them that Christ loved them, took that wrath in his own body, and now offers them eternal life. And if they will follow him, he will become their loving Lord and master, and they will have a purpose for all eternity like they've never known. That's our job. That's what a disciple, making a disciple is. Making a disciple entails both evangelism and sanctification and discipleship, okay? It's the same thing. Making a disciple begins with telling people about Jesus and, and what it means to follow him. But it doesn't end there. We continue to teach them all things that God has commanded us. So do you see what, we, what the church's job is? That, that's it. That's really it. Everything we're doing should focus on equipping people to know how to tell people about Jesus and how to train them up in Christ, beginning with their own families, to their neighbors, to their co-workers, and to strangers. That's it. That's it. Everything in our world should revolve around that, and that is a full-time job because we all need it. We need to counsel each other. We need to continue to walk with each other and build each other up and have Bible studies and prayer times and meetings and lunches and breakfast together to continue to do this. But that's what the church does. It's about continually setting mankind's focus on the glory of God and growing in him. It is not to be an entertainment center. We're not King's Island. We're not an amusement park. We're not here to be the, 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 the concert venue of, of the region. We're here to make disciples. That means make followers of Christ. And that's it. Wow. I could go forever, but I've got to go. Got to go. Got to move. That's our purpose. So it's so simple, folks. If, and, if we're, and if a church is faithful to simply do that, to be faithful to preach God's word, to, 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 to focus people on Christ, to cause them to look to Jesus, if we're just faithful to do that, he will do the rest. He'll make the disciple. But many churches are not faithful to do that. And they try every other stinking gimmick in the world to get people in the seats and to make them happy so that their checkbook is happy and that they keep giving to, to continue to support their big monstrosities that they keep building to, to house more people that they keep tricking to come in the doors so they can open the checkbook again and pay for the next monstrosity. That they have to, Folks, that is not what we're called to do. That's not the church. The church is simply an assembly, a gathering of people who love Jesus Christ and have been saved by his grace and want to learn all they can about him and how to tell others about him. That's it. Very quickly, what would that look like? A description, right? The description of the church. If you watch any old good uh, investigating movies and so forth, when the, when the detective comes to the house, he asks the question about the perpetrator, uh, it, was, it was some guy that broke in. Oh, do you have a description? What did he look like? Right? And, and so we need a description of the church. What does it look like? And so we're going to see that very quickly in, in Acts here. 241 begins. This is glorious. By, by the way, this is, you think I'm preaching along. Peter preached here probably two or three hours, and he's on the day of Pentecost, and he's preaching 
Starts in the Old Testament, goes all the way through, comes up to Christ. And he tells them, you all crucified him, and he's the son of God, and he's your only hope. He was boldly preaching. And they said, what must we do? They were cut to the heart by the preaching of the story of Christ. That's the power, the gospel. What must we do? To which Peter earlier in chapter 2 says, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. And that is the truth. Repentance, baptism, all that stuff, it's all part of us saying this. I am turning from my sin and admitting that Christ is Lord. And my faith in him entails a lot of obedience to him. And part of that obedience is not just in my heart secretly saying, yes, I love you, but publicly being baptized. That's, what, that's why he put those together. If I'm unwilling to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, my faith that I say I have is a sham. That's the idea here. Are you willing to be all in for Christ and to show that, yes, Lord, I believe you. And yes, the baptism part doesn't save us. Obviously, that's not what he's saying there. But when he puts those together, he's simply saying that this, this is it. If you've been baptized and your faith is in Christ, your sins are forgiven. Why are you being baptized? He's saying, repent and be baptized because your sins have been forgiven in Christ. It's all one thing there. Have, you, have, we, have we done that little bit? The reason I say that is because after this sermon that Peter preaches, we see the results of it beginning in verse 41. And what does it say? Here's the result of him preaching Jesus. So those who received his word were baptized. Those who believed the message about Christ were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Wow. Added. Hmm, that's an interesting word. Added. Yes, added to that which already exists, which is what? God's assembly of people. God began building that assembly, and he's still building that assembly here in Acts. And these 3,000 people that day are added to that assembly. So you see, that's the first step there. You've got a bunch of people now who have believed the message of Jesus Christ. They've obeyed Christ. They've publicly been baptized. They're believers. What do they do? Here's the church. Here it is. We're going to see the description. Here it is. Verse 42. And they devoted themselves. That's, stop right there. That, they just devoted themselves. And that's a group. Now, they may not have all been in one group or one house. So, by the way, let me say that. You got 3,000 people, and they, they didn't have a mega church back then. Many of these, as we see in the New Testament, people, these churches broke up and met in houses and bigger meeting halls. Sometimes they met in the court of the temple, wherever they could meet. But nonetheless, they devoted themselves to a group of people. It's not an individual sport here. They didn't just leave that day and say, well, I'm a Christian now. I'm going to go about my business, and me and Jesus are going to have a good thing going. No. From that moment on, when they trusted Christ, they were with people. They devoted themselves to what? What do those people do together? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. You see those things. Now, by the way, we here at, at, at Grace have what we call the four Ps, kind of what marks us as, as a true New Testament local church. And we see some of these things right here in this verse. 
One of our P's is proclaim Christ. The first P out there, proclaim Christ. We proclaim Christ. The next P is prepare disciples. What do both of those things have in common? Teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and proclamation about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. That's the first thing they devoted themselves to. Teaching, preaching. So therefore, we do that. We proclaim Christ. We prepare disciples. The next thing we see is fellowship. Fellowship. They devoted themselves to fellowship. That's living life together, being together. Our third P is participate in community. That's what we mean by that. Participate in community. Be with people. Fellowship. Living life together. Breaking bread and prayers. All of this falls into fellowship and communion and community, by the way. We pray in community together as a church. We break bread. When we break bread and remember the Lord's Supper, we do that as a community, not individuals, but we come together. So these, these early believers show us what the church looks like, what a local church looks like, what they do when they came to know Jesus Christ and were baptized. They devoted themselves to one another. And they continued week in, week out, many times daily to do these things together. Then look what we see, Acts 2, 44 and 47. Just hang in there, folks. I told you, it's, all good, it's okay. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. So here's again some of these attributes of what's that church look like? What does that body of believers look like? What's it look like to be a church? All the believers were together and had all things in common. Now, literally, this is not just saying they, they, they were in unity or had the same ideas. It literally is talking about they distributed their wealth equally, equally in common. They had all things equal among them. And he goes on to explain that. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the, the, the proceeds to all as any had need. These people had needs. Somebody would say, you know what, I got this uh, old camel, 64 camel I'm not using, and uh, needs new shoes, I'll just sell that, and I'm going to donate this to my, my buddy who needs this help right now. Or, you know, <laughs> just one example, maybe not the greatest, because he should have sold his best car, gave, I know. But anyway, but this is the idea, though, folks. Their, their life has changed now. This is my whole point, man. This is what I said at the beginning. Church, this message should blow us up. Church is not just something I go to once a week where I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a member of down there, right? It's just on my resume. I'm a church. No, no, no. Church is your life if you're a believer in Christ. That's what we're seeing in this New Testament book of Acts. These people were never the same. They never stopped living life together. Matter of fact, many of them had to support each other because they were so persecuted for trusting in Christ in the first place. We don't know anything about that in America. But our brothers and sisters around the world do. And I pray that we will grab that no matter what. Even in our affluence in this nation, I pray that we will be a people who say we belong to one another. We live life together. What do you need? I'm here for you. That's the church. That's what we're seeing here. And they were selling their possession, belonging, and distributing to the proceeds to all. We have that ministry here, by the way, called Love Indeed. It's a ministry whereby if people, they... they um, not unanimously, what is it when you're secretive? Uh, they anonymously, thank you very much, can, can say, I have a need. And we'll, we'll say, hey, I think we can meet that. And, and, and that's, that's what it, a small picture of what this is. 
And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their house, in their homes together, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You see, this is the action of the church. They're living life together. They're in homes together. They're breaking bread together. Day by day, they're talking about Jesus. They're encouraging each other. They're confronting each other's sins. They're confessing sins to one another. And they're growing stronger in the love of Christ, so much so that they have a bold witness and people are being added daily. We're glad when visitors come and I thank the Lord for people who come to our church. But man, we're talking about people coming to know Jesus daily because of the Christians in that church living as the church together in their community, in their homes. Do you know where it says praising God and having favor with all people? It says that they were praising God. That's worship. But they, they also were having favor with all people. That's not a prosperity gospel verse. It didn't mean that all people showed favor to them or that they were in the good graces of the people. The word favor means grace. Literally, these people were showing grace to all people. They were preaching the grace of Christ. They were bold about their witness about who Christ was. And daily, people we're coming to know Jesus. That, that's what the church looks like, folks. Our final P in our church is practice mission of mercy, and that's basically evangelism. Mission, that's our mission. What is our mission? Tell people about Jesus. Mercy, love each other. Have compassion. Help each other. All right, that's it in conclusion. Man, good night. This is it. This is it. It's been nice knowing you. The conclusion of this message, this is our practical application, very quick. The church is, is a gathering of God's people. Just get this, please. Maybe you'll never come back, but I pray that if you do, I pray that we got this. I'd rather, again, I know this is a bold thing to say, but man, I'd rather have a few people with this mindset than a bunch of people that say it's hogwash, right? Than a bunch of people that have the wrong concept of what the church is. So here it is, get this. The church, and I'm talking local now because that's what really, that's what deals with us, Right? The local church is a gathering of God's people who have received the gospel of Christ, been baptized, and who learn together, break bread together, fellowship together, pray together, and make disciples together. That's it. That's what we do. That's what we should be doing. And all these are marks of the church, but again, none of these can be done without the greatest mark of a local church, and that's what I want to end with. Can't forget this one. The greatest mark of that local church being a church of Jesus Christ is not that they just do these things, but that they genuinely love each other while they're doing those things. That there's a genuine love for each other that causes them to continue to be patient, to sit with somebody and listen to their problems and, and yes, talk about their sin or talk about their victories or talk about their struggles. This is what we do. We live life together. And man, you say, I don't have time for that. Well, folks, that's not what the church is. The church says, my life now is the church. Everything I schedule, everything my family does, everything we, 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 that, that we take part in, in the back of our mind, we are a part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and that's the way we want to live. Jesus said in John 13, 35, this is the last verse we'll read. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. There is the key. There's the catalyst for our love for each other. We love each other and look past the flaws and the things that drive us crazy, 
and the idiosyncrasies, or however you say that word, we look past all that because God has loved us. So I can love you. You see that? You love just as I love, have, have loved you. You also are to love one another. That's how you love each other, the way I loved you, unconditionally, patiently, sacrificially. That's how Christ loved us. Gave himself up totally for us, was crushed for us, betrayed for us, lied about for us. His reputation was scorned for us. Can you not let your reputation go for somebody else? Do we always have to win? Do we always have to be right? Can't we just let it go and just love somebody? They, they wronged me. You know what they said about me? Love it. Can you not just say, wait a minute, God loved me and took all of that for me. I can also love as he loved me. Doesn't mean we don't confront sin and, get, and tell people, hey, that was wrong. I'm not saying that, but I am saying there's a part of us that needs to, to, to sit in the trench with people, be willing to sacrifice and love them like that. One quick example of this, and I am done. Whew. Last week, See, I've had the opportunity to sit here in, in, with my family there in the middle of the church and just be a part of this local church and, and, and worship. It's glorious. My wife and I are taking a counseling class on how to be a helping relationship to others, how to, how to build helping relationships, right? How to help each other in relationships. It's, a, it's for counseling, right? To, uh, we, we need to know these things. You know, Charlie's taking it too. He really needs that class. But I'm just kidding. Charlie... <laughs> You know, other folks are saying, um, and one of the, the things that we're really learning is how to really go beyond the facade of talking to people and actually build real relationships by going deep in conversation with people, to, to ask meaningful questions, actually listen to people, take time. That's what we want to do. This is my goal. If we start any one place, if we start at one place being the local church, I want us to start here, and that is loving each other, because if we don't love each other, we're not going to love the world. So loving each other genuinely building relationships with each other, getting to know each other here. How? It means you can't just say, hey, how you doing? Good to see you. What about them Bengals? See you. Bing! That's most of our conversation, right? Me too. How you doing? Great. Good, good, good to see you. Yeah, see you. Fantastic. Yeah, nice day. Yep. Yeah, great. Bye. So, so, so last week I was just given this opportunity to, to do that. I was sitting behind Nate Faber. If you never sat behind Nate, you do see there's a great passion sometimes that comes out of Nate, especially during worship. So that was a joy. I was encouraged. Like, wow, this guy is worshiping, man. He loves the Lord. So after the service was over, everybody's mingling. I walked by Nate. I said, hey, brother, good to see you. How you doing? Good. I said, good. I'm praying for you. And I started to walk on. It just, that praying for you was, was just a filler. It's pastoral, right? I'm praying for you. But then I stopped. And I said, hey, by the way, how can I pray for you? Wow. And then I looked in at, at Nate. Tears welled up in his eyes. And he shared with me about this accident that his brother was in. He said, last night my brother and his family were in a horrific car accident in Missouri. I mean, my... my sister-in-law and my, my, my nieces and nephew had to be air-cared away from the accident. And I don't even know what's going on right now. He didn't even know. <sighs> Man. So I prayed with him right there. He said, let's just pray. And we did. 
and I'm not saying it was super moments of a big light flash down from heaven. We all floated on a cloud for a minute and looked at each other. This is wonderful. We didn't, that didn't happen, but there was this connection. And I, I, I trust that my brother was encouraged and I was just made to share and carry a weight that he was bearing alone. I never would have known he was carrying that weight. Have I not just stopped and asked a few words? How can I pray for you? And then he was faithful because he could have said, oh, just because no. that's our tendency to just brush that off as well. When somebody asks us, how, how you do it? Well, fine, I don't want to really tell you. Folks, we, it's on both sides. We've got to be faithful to ask questions. And then if you're asked a question, you've got to be faithful to answer that question more genuinely than you've been used to. That's how we love each other, folks. Simple ways like that. Wouldn't it be wonderful just to see in this church after a service pockets of people talking with their heads bowed, praying over needs, being the church to each other. That's what we got to be, folks. That's what I pray we'll be. Let's pray. Let's just bow our heads together and ask God for this because the only way we can do these things is by His grace. Father, we thank You for Your church, Your people that You have called out eternally belonging to You in Christ, assembled before You right now. But Lord, we thank You for this local blessing You've given us called the local church, a little outpost of that right now in this world. Help us to love it. That means to love each other because that's what this church is. It's us. Let us love each other, serve each other, pray for each other, hurt with each other, and laugh with each other for your glory. Then will all of Bridgetown know that we are your disciples because we have love for one another. And you will be glorified. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.